We're in Exodus chapter 20 this morning, looking particularly at verse 13. Exodus chapter 20. Well, next week is obviously Easter. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 for Good Friday this Friday and, and this next Sunday as well as we look at the death and resurrection of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. After that, we're going to be landing ourselves in the book of Proverbs for quite some time up until the fall. And uh, this morning, though, we're, we're in our last sermon in this series, Let Us Hold Fast, the title of which has been taken from verses in Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 10. We're encouraged to hold fast to our confession of faith in order to persevere in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And normally here in our church, we'll, we'll typically kind of land ourselves in a, in a book of the Bible and simply sequentially work our way through it. But from time to time, we'll, the elders here will choose subjects relevant to our church and our cultural moment and address issues and subjects in a series like we're in right now. In this series, we've addressed a, a number of relevant issues in our particular cultural moment, and this morning, we want to close our time in this series by addressing the issue of our being a pro-life people, being a pro-life people. We're, we're asking the question, does the Bible require us to be a pro-life people? As Bible people, should we be a pro-life people, and what kind of pro-life people should we be? We're considering this from Exodus chapter 20 which is where we find the Ten Commandments. Particularly, we're looking at the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. Now, the Ten Commandments, it's one of those, uh, what I would call a, a mountain peak text in the Bible. It's one of those kinds of mountain peak texts in the Bible. Obviously, the Ten Commandments are God's law, like much of what we find in the first five books of the Bible. They're God's commands for His redeemed people. But the Ten Commandments are notable because they serve as something of a summation and distillation of all that God requires of us as his people. They represent something of the core of what God desires for the, the, the lives of humanity. And you can see this clearly as much of the Bible's teaching on ethics seems to repeat and unpack precisely what we find in the Ten Commandments, as we'll see this morning. But for now, let's, let's, let's read the Ten Commandments we're going to read all of them, but we're particularly looking at the sixth commandment in verse 13. But let's read all of them. If you'd stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence, let's listen with joy to the word of God in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17, particularly looking at verse 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we pray that you would bless and anoint the reading and preaching of your word this morning with the presence and power of your spirit so that we might be conformed to your will, so that we might be conformed to the image of your Son, so that we might be more and more a people of life, even while we dwell in the midst of a culture of death. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You might be wondering why we'd look at a text like this this morning. I mean, after all, you shall not murder is, well, is one of the most widely known and agreed upon and understood commands in, in the Bible. It's one that most everyone thinks they've got down pat, don't they? Don't murder, check, got it. Now, others of the Ten Commandments, of course, they, they don't share such wide agreement and approval as the sixth does. Other of the Ten Commandments might seem needlessly restrictive or too exclusive. They might seem outdated or even sexually regressive, but you shall not murder is it's not too hard to keep. Most follow it. Everyone agrees upon it. It was Pope John Paul II, though, that, that once, I think, rightly said that the culture we are living in today is a culture of death. We live in a culture of death, a culture that has so devalued human life. We, even, we live in a culture that, that so often views and treats human life as nothing but a cheap commodity. And because of that, death, murder, violence, if you have eyes to see, if you actually take notice, is actually all around us. It seems to be everywhere, doesn't it? I, of course, it's it's in the movies and TV shows and in the video games we play. It's, it's, we're, we're very desensitized to it in, in some ways. We often don't even think twice about it. But the American Psychological Association has stated that by the time a child finishes grade school, on average, they'll have seen about 100,000 acts of on-screen violence and over 8,000 murders depicted on television. And that's not all. It's, it's also constantly in our news feeds, isn't it? Our nation is, of course, reeling and brokenhearted from a shooting in Nashville this past week. But that's tragically not so out of the ordinary, is it? By one count, there's been over 1,000 mass shootings in the United States over the last decade. By one count, there's been over 100 this year so far. And it's not just in our news feeds, it's in our neighborhoods. Dayton counted almost 50 murders and non-negligent manslaughters last year, which is on a steep rise from previous years. We live in a culture in which 
favor for and advocation of euthanasia and assisted suicide is on the rise, even while Roe v. Wade has recently been overturned. And abortion rates continue to go down, thankfully. And some states have even outlawed it. The fact of the matter is legal abortion is still a sad reality in much of the United States. It is here in ours. In the U.S., hundreds of thousands of babies are still aborted every year. And, and more, almost 60% of U.S. citizens favor its legality. And that's to say nothing of this, this, this deep, permeating hatred and disdain and bitterness that Americans are increasingly feeling toward one another. It's, it's evident to see in, in ways that seem unprecedented. We live in a culture of death. And in some respect, it's always been this way in the world, ever since Genesis 3 and 4. In Genesis 3, we see the, the fall of humanity into sin. Immediately after, we see the first recorded murder in Scripture. Cain murders his brother because of his jealousy, his contempt, his hatred harbored in his heart. And while in some ways, guys, life has continued to improve in, in certain ways and in some areas in the world. And due to the influence of Christianity on the West, there, there's something of a greater value placed on human life in our time, in our place, in some ways. But not everything is getting better. Humanity is still the same humanity it was back in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, and sometimes with just a greater capacity to kill one another. We live in a culture of death, where in many ways we're getting more efficient at killing one another, where life is treated as a cheap commodity. But as we come to the sixth commandment, we find the Lord saying to us, not so among my people. My redeemed people that I've called out of slavery to sin and death are not to embody and imbibe this culture of death. No, my redeemed people are to be a people of life. My people whose, who, whose lives I have purchased with the blood of my dear son are to love life and protect life and preserve life and treat it as precious. My people are to be a people of life even in a culture of death. And that's the kind of big idea that we're working from this morning as we consider the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. But as we consider it, I, I want us to be encouraged as a, as a people of life under three main headings. First, we're going to look at God's precious creation. Second, at God's plain command. And third, at God's pro-life church. Now first, consider with me God's precious creation. Now the sixth commandment, is obviously pretty straightforward. You shall not murder. It's plain, it's clear, it's straightforward in, in many ways. So when, when we come to this commandment, we, we might do well to simply ask the question, why? Why? Why are we given this command to not murder? In, in the command itself, there's, there's no reason given. There's no warning or promise or anything else attached to this commandment like we see with some of the others. So, so what's the reason, biblically speaking? And asking that question will take us all the way back to Genesis 1, to the foundation of why this command is given. Before Genesis 3 and the fall of humanity, before Genesis 4 where we see the first murder, we see in Genesis 1 that humanity is made in God's image. Genesis 1, 26 to 28 says this, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. Now, 
the implications of words like this in the ancient Near East, they're radical. Okay, they received these words in a time and place where typically only kings and rulers were said to be the image of gods. Only the, the wealthy, the powerful, those who sat on thrones and wore crowns on their heads were said to be the image of the gods ruling the nations on their behalf. They, they, they alone were viewed as particularly special and set apart and valuable. But here in Genesis 1, Yahweh says, no, 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 no. all humanity is made in my image. All humanity is called to rule over and steward creation on my behalf. All are created with dignity and value and worth, not just the wealthy and powerful kings, because all are created in my image, the rich and the poor, the free and the slave, the male, female, elderly, infant, Jew, Gentile, all people are created in God's own image and in his likeness, and therefore all are precious to him and possess great dignity and worth. Out of all the things that God has created, he says, this is my special creation. This one is precious. This one is set apart. This one is made in my own image. I kind of like to think of it as, as, as humanity as, as being God's magnum opus, if you're not familiar with that term, a, a magnum opus is like a, a particularly special piece of literature or music or a special work of art, and, and it's one that's typically regarded as an author's or an artist's most important work in all of their career. The work that, that kind of sums up and, and, and marks what they've done. They're, it's their greatest work. Some famous kind of magnum opuses would, might be like Harry Potter by J.K. Rowling or Lord of the Rings by... Tolkien, or you might think of the Mona Lisa, which is uh, obviously Leonardo da Vinci's magnum opus. In the realm of music, you might think of Handel's Messiah or uh, Live from Folsom Prison by Johnny Cash. You might think of Master of Puppets by Metallica. That's their magnum opus, right? It's an artist's greatest work. It's kind of an illustration for what humanity is like in God's creation. If you think of God as, as sort of a, a, a divine artist for a moment, and you think of the, the universe as his gallery, and he's just filling it with beauty and splendor and wonder. If you just look at a flower, you go, this is, this is the most beautiful thing. My goodness, look at how gorgeous this is. But on the sixth day, God creates us. And he says, oh, I've created a lot of beautiful things, but out of all of the things I created, this is my magnum opus. This one is made in my image. It has such worth and value because it images me. It shows forth something of my glory and worth as the creator. Friends, understand, God treasures you. And he treasures all of humanity in this way. God considers his image bearers to be precious. And what happens when we undermine or ignore this is that human life is seen as having less and less value in the world. You know, if God didn't create each and every single individual in his image, and if there's, if there's no God above us, and therefore no extrinsic uh, value given to us as humans, then we therefore have no reason to value life or, or to keep this commandment. In fact, there's, there's one American medical professor named Malcolm Potts who's recorded as having argued this very reality. He, he, he once wrote this, 
that for modern Western people, we can no longer base our ethics on the idea that human beings are a special form of creation made in the image of God, singled out from all other animals and alone possessing an immortal soul. He says that once this religious mumbo-jumbo has been stripped away, we may continue to see normal members of our species as possessing greater capacities of rationality, self-consciousness, communication, etc., than members of other species. But we will not regard as sacrosanct the life of each and every member of our species. In other words, he's saying, we got to do away with, with the idea that humanity is a special creation of God and thereby stop Stop valuing human life as being particularly sacred and valuable. And while that statement is horrifying, it's also the exact ideology that results in people viewing things like abortion and euthanasia and suicide and and the like as being permissible and even desirable at times. And it's that exact ideology we find increasingly pervading our culture today, which is why we live in a culture of death. But God says to us, his people, not not so among you. You know that I've created humanity in my image, that I've created the young, the weak, the old, the helpless, the infirmed, the diseased, the disabled. That little Down syndrome boy or girl that our culture calls a problem in the Christian view possesses great value and dignity and worth because they're made in the image of God. Our ontological worth and value is not measured by the gifts we possess or the benefits we bring to society or the economic value we bring. Our value is measured by who our creator God says we are, and he has said that every human being is precious because they're made in his image. Therefore, God has called us not to embody and imbibe this culture of death, but instead to be a people of life. And so with that, we next consider God's plain command. And by calling it plain, I I don't mean to say that it's not deeply and widely applicable. We'll see in a moment that it's it's very widely and deeply applicable in our lives, but I do mean to say that it's utterly clear. It's two words in the Hebrew, four in English, you shall not murder. Perhaps your translation uses less, don't murder or no murder, something along those lines. But, But either way, you can see by just a moment's glance here, that this commandment forbids taking life unjustly. So, of course, been a few different translations of, of this commandment and different English translations in the Bible. The KJV uh, has, has classically translated this commandment, you shall not kill. And typically, more modern translations would use the word murder, which is probably a good move, because the word here in this command is it's more narrow than the word kill. There are about eight Hebrew words used for the taking of life. Something to note about this one is that it's never used when speaking about taking life in, in self-defense or, or in the defense of the weak or innocent or in just war. It's, it's, it's not in reference to capital punishment or to, it, it's not used to describe dire situations that you know, people like law enforcement might find themselves in. Those forms of of killing wouldn't be included in this commandment and wouldn't be described with this word because those are situations, circumstances, wherein God would authorize taking human life. And, and, And you can see why in those particular situations taking human life is only permitted by God in order to protect and preserve human life. But with that, 
That's why the word kill is probably not the best translation for the command. However, the, the word translated as murder and just the whole of the command itself here is also much more broadly applicable than simply outright prohibiting murder. And that's what I want us to see here this morning. This command is not only prohibiting the act of murder, it's also commending and commanding us to be a people who, in all of life, love and protect and preserve life in all that we say, do, and think. And so with that, there's a few principles of interpretation that I'd like for us to consider as we interpret our text here this morning, so that we might better understand this command and better apply it to our lives today. Now, to begin with, it's worth stating outright that, that, that the Bible is always the best interpreter of the Bible. It's always the best applier of the Bible. Okay, so, so the Bible is the best source we have for increasing our understanding of the Bible. It's the best tool we have for helping us understand how we ought to grow in interpreting and applying the Bible. And when we interpret and apply the Bible, we need to take into account all that God has said in the whole of His Word, and that will often illuminate our interpretation and application for any given text. And the same is true of the Ten Commandments. And, and what we find throughout the Bible as we read it is that the Bible actually has a lot to say for how we should interpret and apply the Ten Commandments. And so there's, there's just a few important patterns of interpretation and application all over the Bible that I, I want to look at in order to inform the way that we read these commands, and particularly the Sixth Commandment here this morning. And so with that, our first principle of interpretation that's going to help us understand and apply this commandment is one we might call the negative-positive principle. The negative-positive principle. And this principle shows us that each of the commandments given in the Ten Commandments is both negative and positive. Okay, each of the commands, it, they obviously, many of them, forbid certain attitudes and actions, but they also commend and command certain attitudes and actions. In each one, a sin is forbidden, but also a duty is required. In each of the commands, a vice is forbidden, but a virtue is also commended. So, of course, you know, people typically think of the Ten Commandments as a list of don'ts. And most of them are stated negatively. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself the carved image. You, you, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall not commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, uh, covet. Most of them are stated negatively. Two of them are stated positively. Honor your parents, remember the Sabbath. But most of them are obviously forbidding certain attitudes and actions. And yet just a moment's reflection on this will show that while forbidding certain things, each command will also require certain things of us too. Just for example, it's obvious the first commandment, which forbids worshiping anything before the one true God, also then assumes, putting it positively, that we instead ought only worship the one true God. It's put negatively, but there's also a positive inference. Negative, don't worship false gods. Positive, Worship the one true God only. Another example is, is given in the, the command to not commit adultery. What's obviously stated negatively, don't do this. But elsewhere in the Bible, we find that it's also stated positively. There's a positive, a positive inference. For example, if you look at Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5 is is Solomon warning his son against the dangers of adultery. And he's saying, don't commit adultery throughout the chapter, okay? But, but there he, he also commands and commends something to his son. Listen to what he says 
in verse, verses 18 and 19. He says this, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. So he's rather explicit, Solomon. But you can see how he unpacks and applies the seventh commandment. Don't commit adultery, negative. He also says instead, rejoice in the wife of your youth, putting it positively. There's a negative but there's a corresponding positive application as well. Don't commit adultery. Do rejoice in your spouse. Another example of this is the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. What's forbidden is plain. Don't steal. Don't, don't take what doesn't belong to you. But then the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.28 gives the positive application of that command. There he says this. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So you see the negative, don't steal. Here's the positive, work hard. Do honest work. Be generous toward others. This is the negative positive principle here. And it applies to the, to the sixth commandment as well. You shall not murder. There's the negative side. Don't unjustly Take the life of another. Don't take the life of another person in a way that is unauthorized by God. That's forbidden. But there's also a virtue and certain attitudes and actions required in it as well. Instead of unjustly taking human life, doesn't it then follow that we should instead be a people who, who value and protect and preserve human life instead? We see this in a number of ways throughout the Bible that apply this command more positively. In Deuteronomy uh, 19.5 is one of them. Um, hey, Hannah, we're going to skip that one uh, for the sake of time. Let's look at Deuteronomy 22.8. This is another place where we, where we see this command to not murder applied more positively. It's applied in this case to even just the way that we construct our own houses, the way that the Israelites constructed their houses. So there Moses writes this. He says that when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. You see, in those days, and in that part of the world, a, a person's roof, it was kind of like their front porch. We like hanging out on the front porch, right? And, 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 and so people would spend a lot of time up on their roof in that part of the world. And, and Moses tells them, hey, as the people of God, we're to so value and protect and seek to preserve human life that, that God wants you to put a fence around your roof so that no one could potentially fall off of your roof and die. When you construct your houses, don't be careless and negligent, but instead build your house in a way that might preserve and protect life to the best of your ability. You can see this positive element here. You see the same principle at work in the New Testament with the Apostle John. 1 John 3, the Apostle tells us in verse 15, that everyone who hates his brother, is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So there's this, this kind of negative side to the commandment, right? No murder, no hatred, don't do that. But then he, he follows in verse 16, telling us about the positive side of this command. He says, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And he shows what that looks like. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, 
How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let's not, let's not, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. You see, he's, he's saying, don't, don't murder or hate your neighbor. Don't murder or hate your brother, negative. Instead, look at the, the, the great love of Jesus Christ. Look at the way that he sacrificed himself out of love and care for us and live according to that kind of love. And that kind of love looks at your neighbor in need and it, it doesn't close your heart. It open, you open your heart to your neighbor and, and, and so that you would be generous to him and give him whatever he needs for his provision and flourishing in life. You see here how this, this negative positive principle to understand the sixth commandment shows us something of what's required of us, what, what kind of people we're called to be. We're called to be a people who pursue the preservation and flourishing of the lives of others insofar as we're able. We're called to pursue the flourishing of life in our homes, in our church, in our city. In other words, in a culture of death, we're to be a people of life. Next is the, the inner outer principle. And so there's the negative positive and the inner outer. And this principle of interpreting the Ten Commandments shows that while many of these commands speak to certain outward behaviors, actions, words, we also see that they address the inner thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Of course, there, there are actually a few commands that speak directly to the heart, first, second, tenth commandments, but the rest of the commandments plainly speak to our actions and words, don't they? At the initial glance, there's can see a certain outward orientation to them. But this principle shows that the, 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 these commands not only apply to outward actions, but also to the attitudes and thoughts of one's heart that might lead to these kinds of actions. And this, just as the negative positive principle, is plainly biblical. We see this principle at work in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. For example, in Matthew 5, 27 to 30, Jesus is, he's interpreting and applying the seventh commandment, not commit adultery. And then he says that, in reality, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The command is to not commit adultery, Jesus says, but it also forbids lustful thoughts in our hearts. There's an outer behavioral application, don't commit adultery, there's also an inner heart-level application that in many ways is just as important. And the same is true of the Sixth Commandment. And Jesus gets at the heart related to the Sixth Commandment in the same sermon, Matthew 5, 21 to 26. Here Jesus is interpreting and applying the Sixth Commandment, and he says this. He says, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. In other words, the command to murder, or to not murder, applies not only to the action of murder, it also applies to the kinds of words we use to address our neighbors. He says we're not to insult or slander our neighbor. We're not to murder, but we're also not to commit character assassination with our words. And furthermore, he says that we're not to harbor unrighteous anger and resentment in our hearts toward our neighbor. 
course, we, we, we could say there, there is such a thing as righteous anger. There's such a thing as anger without sin. We know that. Looking at places like Ephesians 4.26. Jesus isn't talking about that here, though. He's, he's talking about anger in the heart that is, is misdirected or disproportionate or, or inordinate. He's talking about what we, we might call unrighteous anger. And Jesus says that unrighteous anger in the human heart is a violation of the sixth commandment. Which means that, in all reality, there's not one person in this room that hasn't violated this command in some way, shape, or form, in some measure. As we saw just a few moments ago, the Apostle John picks up on this as well in 1 John 3.15. He said that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In other words, hatred, unrighteous anger, resentment, these internal attitudes of the heart, even if they never come to full fruition of the act of murder, are addressed in the sixth commandment. And you can see why. Really, these kinds of heart postures are what's at the root of murder, aren't they? There's never been a murder that that didn't begin in the first place unless there was unrighteous anger and hatred in the heart. John Calvin once rightly wrote that the hand indeed gives birth to murder, but the mind, when infected with anger and hatred, conceives it. These kinds of thoughts and attitudes in our hearts are, are what's at the very root of murder. And therefore, Jesus says, if we've ever been unrighteously angry with our neighbor, you've ever harbored hatred in your heart, if you've ever been cut off in traffic, just, oh, going to kill that person, run them off the road. That coworker who just really just acts as a goad every day, just driving you crazy, your kids, oh my goodness. You've broken this command. Because this command not only forbids certain outward actions, but also certain internal attitudes and thoughts in our hearts. That's the inner outer principle. And then lastly, as you would expect, because of the negative positive principle, because of the inner outer principle, we also ought to use the the grouping category principle when interpreting and applying the Ten Commandments. Seeing that these commands not only forbid and require just one particular action, they speak to and apply to a whole host of actions and attitudes and activities. And so the seventh commandment, for example, do not commit adultery. It's obviously forbidding adultery, but it also forbids lust. It also requires faithfulness to and enjoying one's spouse. And likewise, Jesus applies the, the seventh commandment to unjust divorce in Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Leviticus 20 applies to acts of incest, applies it to acts of incest and bestiality. Deuteronomy 22 applies it to fornication. There's a a whole host of of groups and uh, and categories related attitudes, actions, and activities that are forbidden and required in this single commandment, you shall not commit adultery. The same is true of the sixth commandment as well. We've already seen how this command applies to to negligent manslaughter. You see that in Deuteronomy uh, 19 there. In Deuteronomy 22 as well, it applies to to unrighteous anger and hatred. It applies 
to insults and slander. We've, we've seen it applies to 1 John 3 to withholding material goods from those in need. It applies to a whole host of attitudes, actions, behaviors related to the act of murder and the devaluing of human life. Because of this, the the writers of the Westminster Catechism sought to capture this principle well when they wrote about interpreting the Ten Commandments. They they said this, they said that under one sinner duty in the Ten Commandments, all of the same kind are forbidden or commanded, together with all the causes, means, occasions, and appearances thereof, and provocations thereunto. In other words, they're saying we can rightly apply this command to forbid a whole host of activities that relate to or lead to the breaking of these plain commands themselves. Therefore, we must rightly apply this command to forbid all sorts of things ranging from abortion to euthanasia to suicide to slander to insults to hatred to unrighteous anger to even improper use of drugs and alcohol, because that endangers your life. Not to, to, to apply this command to reckless driving or texting and driving, guys, and other like actions and behaviors. You might rightly apply this command to a, host, a whole host of worthy kinds of activities, like constructing and ordering your, your house for the safety of yourself and for others, giving to those in need, taking care of widows and orphans in their distress, feeding the hungry, living a healthy lifestyle, whatever else might lead to the protection and promotion and preservation of precious human lives. In summary, we we would say this, we are called to be a pro-life people in breadth and in depth. We're called to be a pro-life people as as deep as our human hearts and with all the actions of our hands. We're to be a pro-life people in every sense of the word because this command applies widely and deeply to the lives of God's people. Now with that, it's appropriate then that we should speak to, I want to speak to just one particular area that this applies to. Of course, I I believe we're called to be a whole life, pro-life kind of people. Obviously, the pro-life ethic as we find it in Exodus 20, 13, here applies to a vast array of areas in life. We're to be pro-life from womb to tomb, from life's conception to its natural expiration, in every place in between. But there are a couple of cultural pressure points for for pro-life people in our cultural moment. And one of those pertains to the issue of abortion. I know some of the challenges that people give when we immediately start to talk about abortion as it relates to being pro-life. I understand treasuring human life and treating it as precious speaks to more than just the issue of abortion. Glory, hallelujah, and yes and amen. However, the issue of abortion... I would contend, deserves to be front and center in any consideration of what it means to be pro-life. Because here's the thing. For one, it's the most controversial pro-life issue in our cultural moment. Right? Almost no one would challenge your pro-life position on human trafficking. Or the pro-life position on school shootings. Or the pro-life position on war crimes. But many people in our culture, actually about 60%, would challenge the pro-life position on abortion. I think it's safe to say here that that we might experience the most cultural pressure as pro-life people when it comes to the issue of abortion. 
We're consistently being challenged about what we believe concerning the issue of abortion. So we need to talk about it for that reason. But, but I would contend we need to talk about it as well because there's really no other issue that faces a more vulnerable and defenseless group of people in the world today. There's not a more defenseless and vulnerable people on the earth than babies who still inhabit the womb of their mother. They can do absolutely nothing to defend themselves. And as those who are called to give justice to the weak and to the vulnerable, Psalm 82.3, we cannot neglect or sidestep this issue. And then lastly, reason because there's no other issue in our culture today that has affected such a large number of people. Listen, there, there have been over 63 million children aborted since 1973 in the United States. You give reference to that number, that's the Holocaust times 10. That's the American Civil War casualties 102 times. That's filling Ohio Stadium 617 times over. What could be more deserving of our attention than that as pro-life people? And I understand there's many arguments that, that, that people give to challenge the pro-life position on abortion. People say that it should be legal because, you know, if it's not, then, then women are going to pursue it through, through some other illegal means, which is unsafe and dangerous. As if there's any such thing as safe abortion. People say that, that abortion ought to be legal because of the, the potential hardships people might face without access to it. People might face hardships because their, their children might have disabilities or, or their family might have great financial needs. Some will argue that, that abortion is a right of bodily autonomy for women, and, and there's more arguments to be sure. But no matter what arguments people give for abortion being legal, here's the reality that cuts all of them at the root. Here's the reality that sweeps all of the arguments for abortion being legal off their feet. First, guys, it's just wrong to take the life of an innocent and defenseless human being. Second, it's unborn babies are innocent and defenseless human beings, and so since abortion takes the life of an unborn baby, abortion is wrong. It's really that simple. Hardship is not a legitimate reason for taking a human life. Our bodily autonomy as individuals, it has limits. And, and, and that one of those limitations is when our bodily autonomy threatens or takes the life of another. And that's precisely what abortion does. Understand, unborn babies, they're, they're innocent, defenseless human beings. They are human lives made in God's own image. God has created them and given them life. Christians have long confessed this because it's precisely what the Bible teaches about life in the womb. There's many places we could look to, to, to show that, but one is Psalm 139, 13 and 14. There the psalmist is, is praising God for creating him, and then he says this, he says, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. You see, he's saying that God is the creator of human life, and he creates it in the womb, and he does so at the moment of conception. That moment, a human life is conceived, it's fearfully and wonderfully made. 
At conception, there's, there's a life, a life deserving of love and honor and protection, a life worthy of being preserved. We've always believed this as Christians. Thankfully, due to modern medical advancements, certain aspects of this are being confirmed. It's become an undeniable fact that what dwells in the womb of a mother is not just a woman's body, not, not just part of a woman's body. It's not just a blob of tissue or a bit of jelly, as is often said. It's, it's undeniable that it's a human life whose heart begins to beat four to five weeks after conception, who at six, week, six weeks has facial features, who at 10 weeks their organs are formed and beginning to function. It's a human life worthy and deserving of protection and preservation. And so as pro-life people, we must oppose abortion. We must treat human life from conception till natural death as precious, as worthy of protection and preservation. Now quickly, as, as we come to God's pro-life church, we're running over here. How should we think and live and act in light of these realities? So, so much application has obviously already been given since this is such a practical command. But, but let's consider four brief ways in which we can live as pro-life people today. I'm going to move through these super fast. First, if, if we were to sum up everything we've said here this morning in a single sentence, it would be this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, this is what the Apostle Paul does in Romans 13, 9 and 10. There, there he writes this. He says that the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling of the law. We want to live as people of life, as required in this command. Love your neighbor. Open your heart to your neighbor. John Calvin, when applying this command, once wrote, in this command, we're accordingly commanded. And if we find anything of use in saving our neighbor's lives, faithfully to employ it. If there's anything that makes for their peace to see to it. If there's anything harmful to warm it off, if they're in any way in danger to lend a helping hand. In other words, if we have opportunity and ability to protect and preserve and improve another's life in any way, we ought to do it. We ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. Second, another way that we can live as people of life is to implore God in prayer. We saw in the beginning, we, we, we live in a culture of death today. And therefore, we ought to pray for our culture of death to be transformed and changed into a culture that instead values and treasures life. But to pray for the, the end of things like abortion in our state and in our nation. Let's pray for our culture to be changed into a culture that, that treasures life in a way that leads to a reversal in things like you know, the trends in, in mass shootings and rising murder rates and the like. Let's pray these sorts of things for our country, our state, our city. We believe that God is absolutely sovereign over our nation and over all nations. And in his, in his sovereign permission, nations often descend into terrible depths of depravity, but by his sovereign intervention, they can also be transformed and changed for his glory. 
We see this in places like Isaiah 40, 15. The nations are like a drop in the bucket to the Lord. Proverbs 21, 1 says that governing authorities are like a stream in the hand of the Lord. He can guide their decisions and choices by a mere turn of his hand. And so with that, let's pray to the sovereign God of all heaven and earth that he would do this in our nation so that our culture of death would instead come to value and treasure human life. Second, let's further the cause of life in our various areas of influence and impact, not just by our prayers, but by our words and actions. This, of course, applies to our vocation as as citizens in our nation and state. As citizens in the United States, we, we all have something of a voice to speak into the realm of public policy. Use it. In your particular vocation, you, you might have it in your employment. You might have influence through which you can make a difference in this area in the cause of life. Some of you are social workers. Some of you are, are in medicine. You, you have influence that you can leverage for the cause of life. Use it. Or several in our church are, are, are fostering and adopting. This is wonderful. Others might join in that same kind of ministry. Others might participate in ministries like the Isaiah 117 house or, or Victory Project or No Longer Strangers. You, you might have an opportunity to just in any way help care for women who are having problems related to pregnancy. You might have opportunity to assist those who are disabled or sick or dying as well as their families, their caregivers. There are many ways that we can live as people of life in this culture of death. Also things we can avoid as well. One of those is avoiding forms of birth control that are abortifacient. If your family is considering or pursuing some kind of contraception, contraception, you ought to ensure that it's not abortifacient, that it doesn't potentially terminate a life already conceived. Related to that, we, guys, we should watch the way that we talk about children. So many in our, 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 our culture today talk about children as if they're burdensome, as if they're an imposition in our lives. Many in our culture speak about children in this way, and it's terrible. Psalm 127 would call children a blessing from the Lord. The Bible would call them precious image bearers, and so we should make sure that we're not sharing the world's perspective on children, but that our perspective is shaped and formed and guided by the Word of God. And then lastly, enjoy the gospel of life. Enjoy the gospel of life. Friends, we've talked much about God's law and commands this morning. But I want us to remember what Exodus 20 verse 2 shows at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, at the beginning of our passage. Is that these commands are given to an already redeemed people. That they're given to a people that God has, has already rescued and redeemed from the land of Egypt and from the house of slavery. He's, he's not giving these commands so that his people can be redeemed, not so that they, they can earn or deserve his redeeming grace. No, they've already been redeemed, and he's giving these commands so that they can live in the freedom that they've already been given as those redeemed. And the same is true of us this morning And even more so, friends, as you know, we've been granted an even greater redemption in our day. We've been granted a redemption far greater than than redemption from slavery to Egypt, which is just a shadow of the redemption that was to come. We've been given redemption from sin and guilt and death and all in our Redeemer, Christ Jesus, who has come 
to give us eternal life. And he's come to give us eternal life by living the perfect life in our place. And we've lived lives of, of injustice and lawlessness and death. He lived a life of perfection and justice and righteousness. He never murdered. He never spoke a false or slanderous word. He never harbored hatred and resentment in his heart. And, and as perfect humanity, he counted your life as being so precious to him that he went to the cross in our place. And there he gave himself to be murdered on a tree in order to redeem a people with murderous hearts like us. And that's not all. He rose three days later so that the power of his life would break into this world of death and so that we too now can possess eternal life in him, so that we can be transformed and made more and more like him in his beauty and in his goodness. And that's good news for people like us. Because if, I, I know if you're like me, there's not one person in this room who has not broken this command in letter or spirit, in thought or word or deed. It's good news for people like us who have harbored hatred and resentment in our hearts. It's good news for people like us who have insulted and slandered our neighbors. It's good news for people like us who have acted in violence and hatred, who have killed, whether in our hearts or with our hands. It's good news because no matter who you are or what you've done, any and all who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, this gospel brings forgiveness and redemption and new life for you. So that you don't need to live under the weight and guilt of, of whatever has taken place in your past, but so that you can enjoy the freedom and redemption of Christ Jesus and thereby be transformed into a people of life, even in this culture of death. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to the table, please seal this word upon our hearts. Transform us through communion with you, through remembering the death of your dear son, so that we might be, in an ongoing manner, transformed more and more to a people who embody and imbibe this culture of life that you have created in your church and who continually more and more put off this culture of death that we're fleeing and coming from. Lord, work in us now through the elements, through the means of grace, and by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. Give us communion with your dear Son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.